If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, and we're pleased to bring you a very special offer. Subscribe to BBC History magazine today, and you can choose a book worth up to £30. Choose from either Queens of the Crusades by Alison Weir, The Children of Ashen Elm by Neil Price, Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre, or The Story of China by Michael Wood. Not only that, you'll also get every issue of BBC History magazine delivered direct to your door, all from just £22.45. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history book. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your book within 28 days of ordering. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, in which we explore a subject through questions you've sent in on social media and popular internet search queries. Today we're speaking about the Glorious Revolution of 1688 with Ted Valence, Professor of History at the University of Roehampton. Ted's books include The Glorious Revolution, 1688, Britain's Fight for Liberty and A Radical History of Britain. He's also contributed numerous features to BBC History magazine over the years. Putting your questions to Ted was our production editor, Spencer Mizzen. Ted, I... I thought I'd kick off this interview with uh, one of the top ranking queries among internet searches. Um, It's quite a wide ranging question, but uh, a good scene setter, I think. And that that question is, uh, what was the Glorious Revolution? Can you talk us through the the milestones in this act of regime change? Yes. So the Glorious Revolution is the series of events that leads up to the replacement uh, of um, James II, who's the uh, Catholic, as reigning king, uh, with his Protestant daughter, Mary, and her husband, William, um, who is the Dutch stadtholder, Dutch leader. Um, They become joint monarchs um, in place of James in uh, 1689. Um, the the trigger really for for these events. I mean, there's I think there's um, you know much longer standing set of causes that we can uh, talk about, um, and I think you've got some other questions on your list that that deal with that. But the immediate trigger um, is uh, the birth of a healthy male heir. 
uh, to James in the summer of 1688. Um, what uh, has been the sort of the, the 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 sort of picture in terms of the royal succession before this point is that James is going to be succeeded by his daughter Mary, who's raised as a as a Protestant. So um, anxieties about Catholic rule. Um, which have been, you know, heightened by um, the experience of and memory of uh, the rule of Mary Tudor uh, and the kind of amping up uh, of anti-Catholic fears over the course of the Elizabethan and Stuart periods are kind of um, contained to some extent by the fact that people anticipate that James's reign is going to be uh, he's quite old, it's going to be a relatively short reign, and he's going to be succeeded by his his Protestant daughter instead. Uh, but what happens in the June of 1688 is that a healthy male heir is born, very unexpectedly, because um, uh, he, he has been wa- married to his second uh, wife, uh, Catholic uh, Mary of Modena, for some time, and they haven't produced any children. So the fact that there is a healthy male child born um, is a surprise, and it raises this prospect of there being a long dynasty of Catholic monarchs uh, reigning um, England. And added to that is the the um, fear that has been raised by the policies that James himself has been pursuing during his reign, and in particular his policies to effectively emancipate his uh, Catholic co-religionists. So we're dealing with a period where Catholics are excluded um, from holding public office, um, where they're subject to all sorts of of, of legal penalties, and James is working to get these penalties uh, removed, basically by um, trying to use his prerogative powers to do this, but he's also um, working to get a packed parliament, a parliament um, that will have MPs in it that will pass the legislation needed to to basically repeal um, these, these penal laws against Catholics. So the combination of these things, these sort of pro-Catholic policies and the birth of um, a healthy male heir who would have been raised as a Catholic um, really brings these sort of anxieties to to a crisis point. Uh, And the response is that seven um, English peers then write uh, to William of Orange, uh, inviting him to intervene in uh, English affairs. Now, for William, there are a couple of things here that are, um, you know, critical to driving him to supporting this this request, to to responding to this request. One is obviously the dynastic question and the fact that um, his his wife is no longer uh, the heir to the throne, and then by by association, neither, neither is he going to come into this English inheritance. But the second point is that he is engaged in in what is pretty much a kind of you know life or or death struggle almost for the Dutch Republic with uh, Louis the Fourteenth France, and what he wants is to get England uh, on side in this struggle against France. Now the the prospect of you know. Um, James uh, uh, with with uh, a Catholic heir and a, a pro-Catholic pact parliament weighs against all of this. So intervening in English affairs gives William the opportunity basically to intervene on behalf of the Dutch Republic. And so uh, in the autumn of 1688, uh, an armada sets out from the Dutch Republic for England and lands in November of of 88. And this is a really substantial military force. This is four times the size of the Armada sent by Spain a century earlier. Um, And so some historians have described it as basically being a Dutch uh, invasion of England at this point. I think we have to stress, obviously, it's an invasion by invitation, and it's also a force that is actually multinational. There are actually English and and Scottish uh, troops as part of this force. There's French Huguenot Protestant troops in in this force as well. Um, It looks in in the winter of 88 as if there might be another civil war in England. Uh, James initially goes out uh, with his army to meet uh, William's force, 
Um, but at Salisbury, that advance um, to meet William's force stops. Uh, and really what happens here is that James has a, a real crisis of confidence, basically. Um, he's, he's, his, his confidence is weakened by desertions uh, from his army, including of leading commanders like John Churchill, who go over to, to William's side. Um, and he's also in poor health himself. James is suffering from these very serious nosebleeds that debilitate him for days on end. So he's, he's basically in a poor state of mind physically and mentally, and he makes the decision not uh, to press on uh, and engage with William's forces on the field of battle and instead goes back uh, to to London. And that means that, that we don't see uh, a civil war in England, although there are um, armed skirmishes as William's forces advance towards the capital, and some of those skirmishes are fatal, um, so that there is actually violence in England. And there's also a great deal of anxiety, um, kind of, if you like, imagine violence too. Um, we get um, an incident known as the so-called Irish Fright in December of 1688, and this is provoked by James disbanding his army, which includes Irish Catholic troops, without at the same time instructing them to disarm so there's an anxiety that these disbanded troops are going to set about, you know, massacring uh, English Protestants in their beds. And this panic spreads a- across the country. Um, uh, it's it's also this panic is exacerbated by the fact that in, on the 11th of December, James himself decides to flee uh, the country. He's he's um, decided that there's there's really increasing threat to his own safety as a result of anti-Catholic rioting that's going on um, in London and elsewhere across the country. Um, that attempt is unsuccessful. He gets captured by some fishermen in Faversham in Kent who mistake him for a, a, a Jesuit priest who's trying to escape, and they don't treat him very nicely as a result. Um, but he's 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 allowed to go um, back to uh, the capital. Um, uh, but then a few days later, uh, p- really pretty much with the connivance of William of Orange, he makes a second successful uh, attempt to flee the country. Uh, and at that point, really, um, the cards are all pretty much in William in William's hand. He is the person who has this, um, you know, large military force at his disposal. So he is the person who's, whose troops can maintain order in this very uncertain, unstable uh, situation. Um, uh, with Mary, you know, they are sort of, you know, the potential kind of candidates here um, to 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 sort of resolve this political vacuum that's being created by James's departure, and William becomes clear um, as the sort of crisis develops that he won't accept just being um, Mary's consort. That he demands a clear share in the executive power. That he demands a share um, of the title, and so. As a result of this and various kind of, you know, horse trading about how, how we describe the events that have gone on. Um, but the the end point of all of this process is that William and Mary are declared uh, joint monarchs in February of 1689. Just to rewind uh, by a few decades, I, th- I thought I'd turn to a question which is submitted by Ian Mason on Facebook. And he asks... Um, did the execution of Charles I still cast a long shadow? I mean, was that the seed of the idea that a king could be removed? It certainly does uh, cast a long shadow. Um, I, I mentioned uh, that moment where James is captured uh, by those fishermen in, in Kent um, uh, when when he first tries to flee the country, and they they basically kind of hold him in sort of under house arrest for a couple of days, uh, and when um, the nobleman, the Earl of Aylesbury, uh, comes to basically to sort of get James um, from from their kind of custody and bring him back to London, he remarks how much James looks like his father did at his trial. So he's, you know, confronted with this unkempt, unshaven figure um, and in remarks and his his account of, of this of this moment that, that James really looks like his father did at his trial. And I think certainly for James himself, his father's fate is playing on his mind in these months as well. 
um, that there's a real risk. You know, he worries to it to his own life um, in in this moment. I think he exaggerates that risk. I don't think James really is um, at se- at serious risk here. Where that risk might have come would have been on the battlefield itself. Uh, if if um, James had engaged William's forces uh, in the winter of, of 1688. Um, and it's a risk, actually, that he later, you know, continues to sort of, you know, put himself under uh, in the in the Irish campaign at the Battle of Boyne. Um, but I don't think there's a real, there's no kind of real regicidal impetus here. I think to to this revolution, there are members, uh, you know, there are kind of um, members of uh, the the that. Uh, that sort of um, invasion force, if you want to call it that, who are on the radical Whig side, who uh, do probably have a kind of affinity and sympathy for that good old cause of the 1640s. Um, And that's, I think that's true. But they're not really kind of the politically uh, dominant figures here. And I think what's being driven at, even in those radical Whig circles, is not... Uh, people calling for a republic, but people who are calling basically for a limited monarchy who want much greater kind of restrictions on the power of the monarchy and much greater restrictions on on its prerogative um, powers. So I I don't think it sort of, it, it provides a model in the sense of, oh, this is how we can kind of get rid of kings. But there is this um, long shadow that it casts that leads people to have all sorts of anxieties about what the kind of worst outcome might be. And one other thing is that it's it remains a very kind of powerful way of smearing people. So well into, you know, beyond 1688, 1689, well into the 1690s and 1700s, um, Tories continually will use the memory of the Civil War to smear their Whig rivals and say, look, what these people really want is a republic. Uh, you know, what they really want is um, uh, to get rid of the Church of England. Uh, what they really want is to have kind of, you know, a, a Cromwellian-style kind of uh, radical Puritan government in place. So it, it's it's a it's a very powerful kind of set of, uh, you know, of... Um, triggers almost to use in political terms well into the 18th century but i don't think it's something that provides a kind of um a roadmap for anyone if anything it provides a sort of what to avoid you know what we should try not to get ourselves in what sort of situation we should try not to get into sure so why in in uh, the 1680s were so many people so vehemently opposed to there being a catholic monarch Yes, I think so. The, the the opposition to Catholic rule partly has to be understood on this background, very long-standing background of anti-Catholicism, uh, which has been you know inculcated as as a almost a kind of core English value um, since since you know the the the, the beginnings of the English Reformation really, um, uh, and has been in, you know become embedded into uh, kind of English cultural memory through things like. Uh, Fox's uh, Book of Martyrs. So there is this almost this sort of cultural association between Catholicism uh, and uh, and and brutal uh, rule and tyranny. And I think that's the thing is there is this sort of interconnection between politics and religion here. It's not just about a hatred of Catholics. It's also about an association of Catholic rule with arbitrary rule with absolute rule power. And in this period in particular, that's more powerful because by the late 1670s, early 1680s, the major European power is Louis XIV's France. So the superpower here is is Louis XIV's France. And at least through an English lens, this is an absolutist state. And it's an absolutist state which is increasingly... Um, draconian in how it treats its Protestant subjects. Uh, and, and that becomes even stronger with the revocation uh, of the Edict of Nantes and the Dragonades that then follow that and the reporting of that in the English press, um, the arrival of Huguenot refugees from France with their own stories of that persecution too. So there's this great deal of anxiety about this sort of interconnection between 
Catholicism and uh, and arbitrary power uh, and the suppression of um, representative institutions like Parliament and um, the persecution of Protestants as well. And it's worth saying that these anxieties are not just attached to James. One of the reasons why um, they are kind of long-standing, long-festering, if we like, is that they have long been attached to Charles as well. Um, there's a lot of suspicion that Charles II is secretly sympathetic, sympathetic to Catholicism. Um, uh, this is obviously exacerbated by his negotiations with Louis XIV um, uh, and also by, broadly speaking, the kind of more pro-French uh, angle of, 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 of English foreign policy. Um, so it's not just about James, it's also about this anxieties about his brother too. Um, but that's obviously becomes much more uh, prominent when we actually get a Catholic successor um, on the throne. Great. Now, um, the next question comes from Morris Creek on Twitter, and it relates to one of the key protagonists in the re- revolution, and that is William of Orange. I mean, his question is, how should he he be remembered and what kind of ruler was he? So um, it's it's an interesting question in terms of how William is remembered because I think, in fact, he's not remembered very much as uh, as a monarch, um, uh, at least in England. I mean, I think it's a different it's a different story in Northern Ireland uh, for very different reasons. Where um, and in some ways, I think the memory of William in Northern Ireland gives us uh, a little snapshot of how he was perceived in the 1690s in England as well. And that is that William really becomes seen as um, a Protestant champion uh, and also a defender of not just English liberties um, or even British liberties, but actually European liberties as well. So he's kind of presented as um, a, a, a you know a warrior prince who is going to defend uh, Protestantism from. Um, the the aggressive ambitions of uh, of France and the ambition of Louis the Fourteenth to become a as it was described at the time universal monarch monarch of whole of the whole of Europe. So he's not really remembered so much as a kind of person as this sort of uh, vehicle, if you like, for the Protestant cause and for the defence of Protestantism. Um, and in a way, that's something that William himself doesn't do a great deal to address. He's not a very approachable character. He's quite a remote figure. He doesn't throw himself into sort of, you know, getting to know his English subjects. He relies a lot on Dutch advisers um, like William Bentick, who becomes Earl of Portland. Um, uh, so he kind of sequesters himself away a bit with these with these foreign advisers rather than getting very close to to sort of English uh, politicians. And so there's a sense in which his kind of his foreignness is never really kind of um, challenged or ameliorated or or watered down. Uh, And this isn't helped by the fact that he's a lot of the time not actually in the country. He's he's away on campaign. He's away fighting his wars uh, against Louis XIV. Uh, And so he remains very much as this kind of symbol um, or in more hostile ty- uh, terms, just as this this foreigner, this Dutchman who's come over. Um, and as his reign goes on, uh, and as that war with France leads to all sorts of domestic issues in terms of high taxation, economic crises, that foreigner becomes more of a public relations problem, especially after Mary dies in 1694. Because Mary has been his kind of surrogate of, you know, this properly English, properly Anglican figure who does all of these things that queens are expected to do, who's sort of beautiful and pious and wonderful and all the rest of it. And once she goes, that 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 sort of um, surrogate isn't there anymore. And we're just left with this rather cold, unapproachable uh, Dutch Calvinist uh, who doesn't elicit a lot of kind of sympathy or, or kind of, um, um, you know, senses of sort of affection from his English subjects. I think a really interesting, I'll, I'll kind of end on this point, maybe, because I think I've said quite a lot here, but there, there probably isn't um, a monarch of England whose subjects were required as often or um, 
in sort of uh, uh, at greatest uh, greater length to declare their loyalty to than William of Orange. So um, after Mary dies, there's a whole kind of uh, effort to get the public to declare their loyalty to William. Um, after a, a Jacobite assassination attempt in 1696, there's this enormous exercise in getting people to declare public loyalty and forming this association to defend William. And then there are other attempts um, in uh, 1701, 1702 uh, for further declarations of loyalty and loyal addresses. And what's noticeable about these is the way in which actually a lot of people don't won't declare that William is rightful and lawful king. They're in fact mealy-mouthed about it. And even though we get sort of tens of thousands of people kind of signing this association to William in 1696, there isn't much sense that all of this activity builds up a great store of kind of, you know, popular support or affection for him. It feels like, you know, this is something that's being driven by the state all the time. You must tell us how loyal you are to William. It doesn't really kind of, you know, feed through in, into any kind of genuine uh, public affection for him. Okay, so let's turn to uh, William's main adversary, and that's obviously James II. I mean, I, I was wondering, um, and this is quite a, a popular question or, or, or among the internet searches, um, and that, that is to what extent did James II's inadequacies as a ruler play a, a role in his downfall? Yeah, I think they do play a role in his downfall. Um, I think that James is a less skilled politician than his brother. And I think that's, you know, a, a, a view um, that a lot of historians have, have come to as well. If we think about the fact that to some extent, what James is trying to do is really what his brother has also tried to do um, for a significant chunks of his reign as well. And that is to secure... Um, a, a broader religious toleration, toleration that will include um, Catholics as well as Protestants. Now, we know, you know, for James that that certainly is the result of his own um, religious affiliations. It may also be the case in terms of Charles, but it's also about um, foreign policy. It's also about wanting uh, to ally the, uh, the country with the most significant European power of the day and that um, France being a Catholic power, this is going to smooth those alliances um, through. So Charles is, in, in some extent, trying the same things that you know James has been doing. The difference is that Charles understands where to draw back. He understands um, where he can't do something through Parliament. So he uses prerogative means uh, and issues you know, two declarations of indulgence, religious indulgence, during his reign. But he understands not to kind of press, continue pressing forward and trying to get um, statutory toleration in place because he sees how politically damaging that will be for him. Um, similarly, the, the the crisis, the exclusion crisis towards the end of Charles's reign, again shows this kind of political nous. So Charles knows that these stories of a popish plot um, to put his brother on the throne um, are a complete fabrication, that they're, they're rubbish. But he's willing to go along with them until he sees that his, his own kind of political strength has reached a point where he can basically suppress all of this sort of Whig uh, activity that's driving to try and exclude his brother um, through the, um, from the throne. So he waits until his kind of political moment is there. James is different. James, I think... Um, always thinks in a way that people should just do what he tells them. That basically, um, I think he still, to some extent, has this mentality uh, of the military commander. This is, you know, he begins his career as as a military officer and then as a naval commander. And there always seems to be this element of him where he thinks the relationship is just a commander to his subaltern, that they should ju just do what he tells them to do. And he doesn't have that kind of political antenna to say, mm, I'm pushing things too far here. I need to draw back. I need to, um, you know, rethink my strategy. He tends to just kind of press ahead, forgetting what the consequences of that might be. And I think we see that when he's driving through these, these pro-toleration, pro-Catholic policies, 1687 and 1688, 
that he doesn't he just doesn't think about the 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 the, the ramifications enough of those it has to be said as well though that it's what james is trying to do is almost it's almost like trying to turn around a super tanker he's got he's got over a century of kind of anti anti catholicism to deal with here and he does try and do practical things to kind of build a coalition in support of t- toleration so he is using um a kind of you know um canvassing efforts almost to try and identify who his potential allies might be and trying to build an alliance to support uh, these policies of toleration over 1687-1688. The difficulty for him really is, though, that this alliance is built with, you know, broadly speaking, um, uh, the, even numerically, the less uh, uh, significant branches of nonconformity, kind of Baptist groups, Quaker groups, um, uh, and sort of you know um, merchants and Whigs in in English uh, towns and cities, um, it is not the kind of most sort of substantial, politically significant group in the country. And the strength that Charles's regime had been able to show in the latter years of his reign had been built primarily on the fact that Charles effectively decided to abandon the policies of uh, pursuing positive toleration and going into an alliance with Tory Anglicanism, because that's where the greatest body of strength was politically, uh, economically in the country. And James is trying to sort of do something that is is um, you know anathema to that that group. So he's really kind of pushing very much against the political grain in the country. He's trying to do something which is is really very difficult um, to to get accepted um, by this really powerful constituency in English politics. So I think it, uh, yeah, there the, there's an extent to which the crisis is precipitated by. Uh, or uh, helped to be precipitated by James's personality, but it's also what he's trying to do is very difficult to do. Uh, I think politically in in the late Stuart context. I mean, would a stronger uh, king um, stroke commander being able to repel um, William's invasion militarily? I think there's an interesting counterfactual there. You know, what would have happened if James had not turned back? Um, I think my hunch is that the outcome would not have been good for James, though. Um, my hunch is that the outcome would have been a similar one that he faces at the Boyne, actually, because although numerically William's force is smaller, I think the assessment of most historians is that it is a better uh, trained, more experienced, more disciplined force and certainly what we see in terms of the desertions that take place, not just of high-ranking officers, um, but of, of rank-and-file soldiers from James's army, indicates that this that, that James's army is, is not going to hang together as well um, as William's will. So my hunch is that, that James would not have come off the better uh, if there had actually been pitch battles in England. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... It's creating a coercive system of labour, both in England and across the whole Atlantic system. And so from that perspective, it very much is not glorious. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, um, the next two questions are, I think, kind of related. Um, The first one is from Bob Brandon on Twitter, and he he asks, was this actually a successful Dutch invasion of Great Britain? And also, uh, the other question is from um, JSM History on Twitter, and he asks, um, to what extent does it meet the definition of a revolution? 
Um, so I wonder if, yeah, if you could just discuss that a little bit. Yeah, so, um, I mean, the idea of this as a Dutch invasion has become more prominent in terms of the scholarship on 1688, and I think this is something um, Jonathan Israel in particular has kind of emphasised this idea. We do, I think, obviously need to um, modify that a bit, as I said, by by acknowledging that this is not purely a Dutch force, it is a multinational force, although it's primarily um, made up of, of 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 troops, Dutch troops, and troops who are funded um, by um, uh, the Dutch Republic. Um, it is obviously, you know, equipped, fully equipped. I think uh, not just to make a political intervention. It's clearly set up um, so that William can. Uh, challenge James's forces on the battlefield if that becomes necessary. Uh, and so I think that kind of uh, military possibility is clearly um, uh, being uh, thought through. Um, but it is uh, an invasion in conjunction with English politicians. It is uh, an invasion that is being um, done in conjunction with English risings that are taking place in the Midlands and the North as well. So it's not purely uh, about this this Dutch force that's landed um, in, in the West Country too. Um, there on that, I think that leads us into this question about revolution here. Uh, and this is something that has become, again, much more prominent in, in recent discussions of 1688. Uh, Steve Pincus thinks that this is the first modern revolution, that it displays all the characteristics of a modern revolution, like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution, um, that what we get is really a violent um, uh, a violent uh, piece of, of, of process of regime change, uh, as you described early, earlier on, Spencer, um, that we 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 get the sort of you know um, uh, almost a civil war in England. We certainly get uh, violent warfare in, in Scotland and in Ireland as well. Uh, it's contested at sea. Uh, it obviously leads into um, the, the major continental war, nine nine years' war as well. Um, and it has these elements of kind of popular uprising and popular um, rioting in in England as well. Um, so it has a lot of the features that we might associate with a modern revolution. Um, I suppose where I would draw back from the picture that uh, Steve Pincus presents is that um, I'm not sure that we see uh, to the same extent that uh, Pincus su suggests a kind of ideological uh, transformation in the way um, uh, that Pincus talks about. Um, and certainly the revolutionaries, or if we want to call them that, themselves are quite keen to state that what is happening in 1688 is kind of a, a restoration of um, business as usual, that they're trying to deal with um, you know, the problems of James's reign and restore English liberties, uh, you know, as, as they see it. Um, now, there's some issues with that presentation that we can we we can talk about, but I think there's a sense in which they don't want to talk about themselves as um as 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 uh, engaging in a kind of radical um break uh from past political practice. Uh, and that itself um creates a way in which um, what the revolution is about is kind of muddied and then, get, as a result, gets debated over the course of the subsequent couple of decades. So I think in that instance isn't a kind of, you know, there, there isn't a kind of uh, uh, imposition of a kind of radical uh, revolutionary ideology, which then everybody has to kind of um, sign up to um, in the way that you would see in, in the French Revolution um, happening, uh, that there isn't that kind of radical alteration in that sense. Um, so I think it displays it displays a number of characteristics that I think we, we now do associate with revolutions, but in some senses um, it's not as clear-cut uh, a break from the past as I think some modern revolutions are self-consciously uh, try and paint themselves as being. And um, um, Lee Jones then uh, wants to know uh, via Twitter, what was the impact of Dutch culture on Britain in the years subsequent to 1688? And 
What are Anglo-Dutch relations like at this time? So, I mean, there's I think there's a very uh, significant impact um, of Dutch culture on England, and it, and it actually well before uh, 1688 as well as as well as after 1688. I mean, the Dutch. Um, Republic has enormous influence from everything from from uh, you know court art to to, to agriculture. Uh, I mean, this is you know one one of our closest neighbours. It's um, uh, you know a society that is linked dynastically um, to the English throne. So it's it, it's a very important um, uh, and influential European neighbour. In the in the decades preceding. 1688, um, it is a major commercial and military rival. And there are three uh, wars with the Dutch uh, fought from the 1650s up to the 1670s, um, uh, you know, as a consequence of this, this uh, primarily this, this, this commercial, this trading uh, rivalry. That then has an impact in terms of kind of English uh, discussions of the Dutch or presentations of the Dutch. And there is, um, from the Cromwellian period on, a kind of presentation of the Dutch as being um, a, a kind of uh, mismatch, not anything kind of culture, uh, a culture whose sort of tolerance is not a positive thing, but um, shows them as this sort of, you know, weird Babel-like culture where kind of anything anything goes um, basically, there is a flip side kind of representation of the Dutch as well, which is is popular in some radical Whig circles, though, which sees the sort of Dutch Republic as an ideal society, as a, a society that has got things right, um, that makes toleration work uh, for it, makes it a prosperous um, uh, country. There's even some kind of quasi-republican elements to this as well. That you 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 know you don't need to have a powerful monarchy to have um, a good, stable, and prosperous society. Um, so there is, in some instances, a kind of republican moral that is drawn from that. That Dutch influence obviously you know increases uh, once we get um, effectively you know a Dutch monarch on the throne, and we can see that in institutional terms as well in things like the Bank of England, uh, which are modelled um, on on uh, Dutch institutions. So that influence increases. Um, there is though a kind of you know, odd thing that goes on here as well, though, um, which is that from from a Dutch perspective, there's the problem that once you have your your head of state as also the head of state of another country, um, there's a sense in which they become neglected, and also a sense in which the the relationship between uh, the Stadtholder and the States of Holland becomes more problematic once you get this kind of monarchical element added into it with William as um, uh, as King of England as well. So there's kind of anxiety about you know what what will happen in terms of these kind of power relationships. But it's an, it is enormously influential uh, relationship, and and not just actually um, you know. Uh, immediately after 1688 it's been an incredibly influential one through the course of the 17th century uh, as a whole great thank you and um now fabrizio del dongo wants to know um when was it first called glorious and by whom and i guess that also leads on to the question should the glorious revolution even be called glorious i mean it's kind of got this um correct me if i'm wrong but kind of in england at least quite kind of quite a uh, benign reputation, one that is seen as uh, a keystone of British liberalism and freedom of expression. I mean, do you think that's justified? Um, so I'll deal with the first bit first. Um, it's usually been attributed to the MP John Hampton coin coining this phrase in relation to 1688 in a, in a debate of, um, I think it's November 1689. Um, but as has recently been pointed out, um, it's not actually the first time that this phrase is used. The phrase is used earlier, actually, to refer to um, the restoration of Charles II. So that's described as being a glorious revolution, and and that gives you you know an interesting insight into this terminology of revolution. That um, it, it can be used to talk about regime change uh, having having happened, and certainly. Um, we know uh, from the work of historians like Tim Harris that um, 
contemporaries do recognise that a change, a significant change has taken place, that something like what we might now call regime change has happened. But at the same time, there are people who are using this language of, of glorious revolution, where what they mean is a kind of uh, a restoration back to things as they should be. So that James's reign is the disruption is the is the is a breach from political and religious norms, and what William uh, William's sort of uh, crowning is doing is bringing uh, England back to to where it should be is 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 a restoration. Um, now that terminology of glorious revolution, uh, I think, has also uh, been. Um, taken uh, as meaning this is a set of events which is kind of providentially willed as part of a divine plan. And it's a set of events which happens um, uh, without uh, the need for kind of bloodshedding and for, um, uh, you know, violence and uh, popular unrest. And certainly that was uh, a a key element of, of what we call the kind of Whig version of, of, of 1688 and certainly the version that kind of um uh, was embedded in a lot of 19th century um uh, histories of, of these events and that's really a, a really problematic uh picture um in, in in a number of respects it's problematic from the point of view first of all that the revolution really doesn't clearly sec- secure liberties in the way that that kind of triumphalist picture suggests so if you take something like um you know you mentioned freedom of expression well there isn't really any kind of formal um acknowledgement of of freedom of the press there is the lapsing of the licensing act in 1695 um but as historians have shown really what that does is just shift how censorship is applied so licensing is pre-publication censorship what happens after 1695 is that censorship moves to being focused upon post-publication censorship. It's not that people, you know, stop thinking we should censor things for religious or political reasons. Um, that continues to happen. It's the mechanics of it change. Uh, now, we do get a much more kind of vibrant um, print culture post-1688. That's certainly true. Um, but it is not, um, you know, something that is underpinned by some kind of you know fundamental acknowledgement uh, of the of the right of, of freedom of the press um that's much more contested and the same goes for things like toleration you know yes we get statutory toleration but it's a limited toleration it's actually more limited than the toleration that james uh was was working for it's only a toleration for certain protestant groups and that statutory toleration itself is heavily contested and argued over over the 1690s and 1700s. For a lot of high Anglicans, this is toleration means a kind of temporary sop. This is something that should be reconsidered and, and probably got rid of, you know, once you've dealt with the emergency of, of the, the, the last year of, of James's reign, we should be looking at, you know, going back to a situation where it's the Church of England or nothing. So, these things are not kind of underpinned by the same kind of constitutional guarantees that eventually follow in, in the American revolutionary case. Um, uh, and so that's one thing. I think the other thing that uh, a lot of historians have emphasised in recent years, and it's really important for us to to acknowledge this, I think, is the way in which the revolution of 1688 contributes to unfreedom, not freedom. Okay, so one of the key things that happens after 1688 is that the monopoly of the Royal African Company uh, over, um, effectively over the transatlantic slave trade, um, gets broken up. And that leads to an exponential increase in Britain's involvement in that slave trade. So as as historians have pointed out, the arguments over freedoms uh, are arguments over things like freedom of trade, they don't consider how that impinges on the freedoms of black Africans, or that is not seen as problematic. And it's actually not just in that context of uh, transatlantic slavery, of chattel slavery. Historians now are emphasising the way in which um, revolutionary ideology, the ideas of people like Locke and people in his circle, also contributed to unfreedom in England as well. That a lot of these writers are talking about the problems of what they see as being the idle poor, 
And the way in which they see that the idle, ideal, idle poor should be dealt with is through something like the workhouse system. That the problem is that these po- people are, are basically lazy and that they need to be put through a system that will make them work, will make them productive. So they must be compelled to labour. It's creating a coercive system of labour, both in England and across the whole Atlantic system. And so from that perspective, it very much is not glorious. And what was the impact of this event on, uh, firstly, the island of Ireland and Catholics in England, Scotland and Wales? Uh, So pretty catastrophic, really, I think. And that's another thing, obviously, we have to bring into this picture of, you know, talking about it as glorious. That's a very Anglo-centric view. If we look at it uh, from an Irish perspective, also from a Scottish perspective, this revolution has to be secured by force of arms. So, so, you know, we get pitched battles in Scotland and in Ireland, very bloody warfare, not quite as horrific as the civil wars of the 1640s, but pretty bad nonetheless. And the end result of these conflicts is basically, um, you know, the securing of Protestant ascendancy in both Scotland and Ireland and the subjugation of and kind of, you know, basically uh, political exclusion of the majority Catholic population uh, in Ireland. And that obviously has a very long, very bitter uh, legacy in Ireland um, and in Northern Ireland uh, in particular. And it's worth stressing as well that um, it is not uh, a happy set of events for English Catholics either. Um, what we see in England too is a reinforcing of that Tudor and Stuart penal legislation against Catholics and new um, financial penalties against Catholics as well. So the land tax that's imposed from 1692 onwards is imposed at double rates on Catholics' estates. So Catholics are being uh, penalised even more than they were uh, in, in the Restoration period. So there's a kind of rise again of anti-Catholicism in an English context, as well as this process of, um, you know, politically excluding Catholics and economically excluding Catholics um, in Ireland uh, as well. So it has a very um, negative uh, set of consequences for Catholics across uh, Britain and Ireland. Okay, and uh Stephen John Lovell, uh, who's written on, in on Facebook, he wants to know how influential was the revolution um, in terms of its impact on the thinking of revolutionaries in France and America? Yeah, it certainly does have an influence. I think what it's important to stress is that um, they are influenced by a certain version of events a certain version of 1688. And so I've talked about a lot about the negative consequences just now of 1688 in terms of religious persecution of Catholics, of warfare, uh, of growth of the slave trade and so on. This is not part of the picture that the French revolutionaries and the American revolutionaries see. They're getting sort of the tarted up Whig version of history where what this is about is about resisting tyranny, uh, resisting um, people who are a monarch who is threatening uh, English liberties and creating a political system which provides uh, checks and balances that will stop uh, you know, royal absolute power from doing that. Now, you know, as I've said, that's actually something, that's something of a misrepresentation of what goes on in 1688. But it's a very powerful myth um, that it is uh, a significant influence on on the, the early stages of the French Revolution, as well as on the American Revolution. So, we get this group that you know in the early years of the French Revolution, the Monarchians, who who believe that what they 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 really want to do is kind of put in place a 1688 for France. That they're going to kind of um, clip the wings of the Bourbon monarchy and they're going to kind of establish this balanced political system and everything will then be fine. And of course, very quickly, you know, events outpace all all of this. 
There's actually an interesting um, kind of more conflicted, I think, uh, legacy in American context, which scholars have recently emphasised. We used to just emphasise this idea of the kind of inheritance of 1688 being that uh, American colonists thought they had the same liber- liberties as, uh, as, as you know, subjects in England, and therefore they had the same right to resist royal tyranny um, when they saw it um, as the English had done in 1688. But there's something else that's going on here too, and that's actually the influence of those revolutionary ideas uh, propagated by um, people like Locke. And that's the belief that, in fact, that once they settled uh, in North America, they were basically in a kind of state of nature, as Locke had described it in his Treatise of Government. And so they were really building government from the ground up. And so they didn't actually need uh, to, you know, they, they were basically independent states. Uh, And once the crown started interfering in this independence, then they had, if you like, an absolute natural right to resist that interference. And that, again, is a very interesting and different um, way of looking at things, because it was a way of looking at things that also automatically, if you like, was taking away the rights of indigenous peoples, was saying that this is a state of nature, um, we were here in in a, you know, in this kind of completely, you know, if you like, natural state, free to set up our own society. There weren't any kind of pre-existing societies that we had to deal with. And then, you know, we created our own our own uh, societies, which we are free to defend. And this is actually something that Jefferson talks about in some of his writings as well. So he's not just about that history of 1688. It's also about this idea of, um, you know, the, 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 the how societies form and this idea of a kind of settler uh, commonwealth that is created from the ground up. And finally, Ted, I wonder if you could um, just explain what you think were the chief legacies of the Glorious Revolution in terms of altering the trajectory of British history. Yeah, I think so. I think one key part of the old picture, if if you like, that we must sustain is the uh, importance um, that the revolution places on Parliament and that is then sustained through the 1690s and 1700s. Um, so, so Parliament is critical uh, to um, driving through uh, the revolutionary settlement. Um, and as a consequence of England's involvement in um, war against France, Parliament becomes much more of a permanent fixture of the political landscape. It's no longer the Stuart event that is called and dissolved at the monarch's whim. It becomes much more an integral part um, of uh, the, the the government of, of, of the nation. Um, the other consequence, uh, the other kind of critical consequences, I think, of the revolution are um, that we do get um, a political culture where increasingly the the disagreements and divisions are being resolved um, through uh, party politics and through elections um, rather than through um, you know rebellion and through conspiracy now not to say that these things kind of go away uh, but this sort of vibrant kind of political culture that all this generates creates this sort of different set of channels through which um, things are, are 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 being generated. I think the same goes on a religious um, side as well, um, that it does uh, move England into a, a, a position where religious pluralism is a, a fact of religious life. Um, it is not, uh, you know, a society in which uh, it's a complete religious free-for-all or in which, you know, things like anti-Catholicism or prejudice against non-conformists has gone away, but it is a society in which non-conformity is now a, a fact uh, of life and religious pluralism is a fact of life as well. Um, I think it's also a critical uh, moment in terms of the expansion um, of uh, English and British Empire, um, both for ill as well as good. You know, I think we, you know, that's we we need to acknowledge um, those negative, uh, very negative legacies of the Revolution as well, and those are legacies of uh, of imperial and colonial uh, ambition, and they are things that obviously will also blow back 
uh, against um, uh, uh, the British state later on in the 18th century, that the creation of this much more interconnected uh, first uh, British Empire becomes something that is then uh, uh, provides the the opportunity to resist uh, and challenge. Um, that uh, imperial system uh, towards the end of the 18th century on the basis of those, you know, part of those arguments of those shared liberties and shared rights that I was that I was talking about uh, a moment ago. That was Ted Valens. His book, The Glorious Revolution, 1688, Britain's Fight for Liberty, is out now, published by Abacus. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Giles Tremlett will be speaking about the International Brigades of the Spanish Civil War.